Jesus, we thank you, God, for your word uh, that is above all things. Lord, it has nothing to do with the way even I present it. Jesus, your word is living and active and powerful, and we pray that we would see that power in our own hearts and in our own lives. And Jesus, we thank you so much that you have a, a plan and a purpose for our suffering, that our suffering is not in vain, that you don't waste anything that we go through. And God, we thank you so much that you redeem these things that we go through. Lord, my heart breaks knowing the stories of so many of your children in here who are suffering right now, and some that are not in here because they're just plain out rebelling, God. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction and would, by your love, Lord God, you would restore those who are just living in a broken place right now. God, we pray that we would experience a, a truly spiritual life today, that none of us would fake it, that none of us would be in here and just trying to figure out your word, but God, we would be truly spiritually impacted, and we would be tasting from the waters that flow from your throne, and we would be refreshed deep in our soul. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we studied Genesis chapter 1 and we saw the creation account and we are going to kind of look more in depth at that today. But what, what we learned about that creation account, the, the pinnacle of God's creation was man. Created on the sixth day, we were created, it said, in God's image, which is so important for us to understand because we have this thing inside of us called morals, morality, a moral law implanted deep in our hearts. Even atheists and naturalists will admit that love is the greatest ethic, but they don't know where it comes from because morality and love and this moral law written inside us, it doesn't have a substance. It doesn't have DNA. It doesn't have a protein or cells. It's not created in those ways. So where did it come from? It could never have been developed or created by purely natural forces. And so the fact that a moral law exists proves that there is a God. The fact that I can look at you and I can ask you, is murder wrong? And you say, yes, it's wrong. Well, what if I'm in Jamaica? Is it still wrong there? Yes, murder is still wrong there. What if I go to Russia? Is murder wrong? Yes, still is wrong there. What if I go to the moon? Can I kill someone there? No, it's still wrong. No matter how far you go, no matter where you're at, the moral law doesn't change. It's wrong to lie, steal, and cheat. And everyone knows it, no matter where you grew up, no matter what religion you follow, all those things are wrong. And it's so fun, uh, actually, to have a debate with, a, with an atheist or a naturalist who, who struggles with that because they'll, you, you can ask them, you can say, well, is murder wrong? And they'll say, yeah. Well, how do you know? Is, is there right and wrong? And, and they get into this, this conundrum where if they don't believe in God, then they can't believe in morals. Because there's no source, there's no place for those morality to come from. You just say, well, who says murder's wrong? Well, it just developed over time. 
that, that's impossible. That doesn't happen. There is a God. Morality is not just a bunch of rules that he made up either, but rather it's an unwritten image of his very character, his nature. Why is it wrong to murder? Because God doesn't murder. Why is it wrong to hate? Because God doesn't hate without reason. Why is it wrong to steal? Because God doesn't steal. So you telling me that my morals prove that there's a God even though I'm an atheist? Yes, you're proving that there's a God by your own morality. So since we were created in His image, we have that nature implanted inside of us. An atheist is my proof that God exists because that atheist has morality. It's amazing. That atheist was created in God's image, and we were too. So the fact that every person everywhere thinks that murdering is wrong or abusing a child is wrong, that rape is wrong, it proves that there is a God. The fact that we all wear clothes today. Any of everyone wearing clothes? Amen. I'm happy for that. But it proves that we all have shame. We feel shame. We instinctively know that we have failed the moral law. That's why we have to wear clothes. We're going to get into that in a little bit more later. We are made in his image. And that we have not lived up to his moral standard, it's clear from our own knowledge and our own judgment. We ourselves know that we've sinned. Hence the clothes that we wear. And if our own conscience is telling us that we're guilty before God, it also communicates to us the value of love and sacrifice. When you see a father give his life for his son, don't you well up with some sort of emotion? Don't you feel deep inside that that's right? That there's something about self-sacrifice and love that is right? Even an atheist will be moved at a stirring movie or a stirring story about self-sacrifice. Why? Why? Because we're made in his image. Because deep down inside of us, we know that self-sacrifice is right. That love is right. And so, what that means, the fact that we know that, it means that God would be perfect at doing such morally upright things. Such as loving and self-sacrificing, giving himself. Which means that he would, because of his own character and nature that we understand because it's inside us, he would provide a salvation for people if they would choose him even if that means sacrificing himself to get that done. So we can literally preach the entire gospel without using the Bible, just from general revelation. So what I've just explained to you is general revelation. These are the things that we can know without the Bible. We can know that God is loving, God is powerful, that God values love and self-sacrifice above hate and murder and rape because those things, his image has been planted inside us. So every man, Paul says, is without excuse. You can know the gospel of Jesus Christ without even the Bible. Amazing. Just amazing. Blows my mind. But then we get the Bible, which is called specific revelation. General revelation applies to all men everywhere. You can know that God would love you and he would make a sacrifice for you if you would ask him. 
just by how we're made, the universe around us, the morality that exists. But specific revelation gives us the reasons, and it gives us the story, and it gives us how he did that. And that's what we get to dive into today. So look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. During the French Revolution, they tried to actually change the length of a week to 10 days. Did you know that? That seems totally crazy and bizarre to us. But why? Why have we always had a seven-day week? Since way before Jesus, the whole world has always had a seven-day week. Why? Because God made it that way. God established how time works. A week, seven days, six days of work and one day of rest. And it's been handed down through our generations to every culture. And the French Revolution did not succeed in changing the week to 10 days. And when I grew up, as I was growing up, I would go to church and I would hear about the Sabbath day. I would hear about Saturday and what we're supposed to do or not do on the Sabbath day. And I never understood it. I didn't get it. I was like, why? Number one, why would God need a break? I, I thought there was no way he was actually tired. So why did he rest? And it wasn't until much later in my life that I realized or I learned that it was not for him that he took this rest. He didn't have a, a check mark of things to do on the Sabbath day like I do on Saturday of, of honeydew list. There wasn't the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you need to get some stuff done on Saturday. So finish your creating and then do It's not at all what happened. He took this rest for me as an example for me and as a lesson for me. It's, it's to teach me to walk by faith, number one. He's saying, I can provide all you need for seven days of living in only six days of work. It's not that big a stretch, actually. But God says, I want every week of your life to be another line in the resume of God's faithfulness in your life. I want every Saturday when you just rest and you take a break, I want it to be a lesson for you that I care for you and that I'm going to take care of you. It takes trust to relax for a day. It's, it, it's the way we're built to operate. People run around and wonder why they're so stressed out. And they think, I can't take a day off each week. I have to work, work, work. And then they end up burned out. Even people in ministry. So number one, it teaches me God's faithfulness. Number two, it's a picture of Jesus. This whole Sabbath day thing. The whole book of Genesis we're seeing is all about Jesus. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me and everything he wrote was about me. And so this right here is also a picture of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. You see, we're not legally required to keep the Sabbath day because in Christ every day is a Sabbath. 
Every day is a Sabbath. Now, is it a blessing in our life when we do keep the Sabbath? Yes. But it's a picture and it's an image of what Jesus does for us. We are freed from our work like God took a rest from his work. That's what he's trying to teach us. Working hard, what work? Working hard to try to please God. Working hard to try to please God. We've been freed from that. He no longer wants a, a life driven by what am I going to do for God? But he wants a life of rest where we say, look at what God has done for me. And then we respond to that. And that might look like hard work, but in reality, it's a response of love. And see, the Seventh-day Adventists will try to trick you with this, and some other different cults as well will try to trick you with, with this, the wording and with what's going on here. And they'll say, no, the Sabbath was given as a command. But Jesus just blows out, out of the water when, when they came to him and they said, why are your disciples eating and walking and doing stuff on the Sabbath? And why are you healing on the Sabbath? Isn't the Sabbath a, a law that we're supposed to keep? And Jesus said, you guys have totally missed the point. The Sabbath was a blessing that God intended for you. It was your day off. If you want to climb a mountain on your day off, then climb a mountain on your day off. That's fine. It was designed to be a blessing, a time when you didn't have to focus all of your attention on work, but you could spend your day with me, God says. A day where we just could be together. I, I will provide that for you. I will provide all you need in six days of work. But the one day I want for myself, I'm, that's how I want your life to work. Is all, you you got to work hard to pay your bills. I get that. You do that in those six days. But one day is for me. I want it. And as a believer, we get that every day. Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, the real reality of the new covenant starts to, to, to uh, become real for us. We start to learn about it. He says, therefore, there remains, therefore, a rest, a rest for the people of God. Is that you and me? Yes. Then there remains a rest. And it says, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And what kind of disobedience is he talking there? He's talking about the nation of Israel when they were brought out of the, the um, nation, the land of Egypt, and they threw the, the Red Sea there, and they're wandering in the deserts, and they were supposed to just go right into the promised land, that, that victorious Christian life of the promised land. But they, they sent some spies in, and those spies saw the giants and saw the challenges, and they didn't trust God. They didn't believe that God was going to take care of it. They didn't believe that God was going to provide a rest for them. And so, they were disobedient and they fell. Every single one of them died in the desert, died wandering around. And I just can't help but wonder how many of us are just wandering around in the desert right now in our life. Do you feel dry? Do you feel confused? Do you feel like you're going in circles in your life? And I think the, the answer to that lies here in the, the seventh day rest that God offers his people. There is no work for a believer to accomplish. God doesn't have a list of things for you to do. 
He has himself living through you to offer you, not a list of requirements for you. Jesus said it was finished on the cross, right? He didn't say, it's just getting started. Wait till you guys get on the scene. Look what I have for you to do. No, he says it's done. The work was finished. And so he offers now a rest to anyone who would stop trying to do things on their own and turn to him in faith. Look for what he is doing. Look at what he has done. We have to do it by faith. And it says here we have to be diligent about our faith. There is the word diligence. There is a sense in which we try hard, but it's never trying hard in our efforts. It's always pursuing God with everything that's inside us. By faith, making faith be what we try hard. Am I trusting the Lord? Can I, can I trust him harder? Can I go more after him? Can I spend more of my heart loving him? That's the diligence that it's talking about. If we stop trusting in the Lord, if we begin to think we have something to offer, if we turn our hearts from him, if we choose to not take his offer of rest or Sabbath for our lives, we will fall. And it's what happens to so many pastors and so many believers that I see. They're going through their life and they're trying so hard to please God. But in reality, they have turned away from the strength and the spirit that he offers and they've turned towards themselves. And what can I do for you, God? And I'm trying so hard in my marriage and I'm trying so hard at my work and I'm falling and I don't know why. I'm falling and I don't know why. And Jesus says, it's because you've left me. You're falling according to the same example of disobedience as the children of Israel. You're wandering in the desert when I had given you the victory. But I'm trying so hard on my marriage, you don't understand. I know you can't fix it. You can't do things to fix it because you can't die on the cross. You can't give a spiritual life. Only I do those things. Only I can do those things. So trust me and I'll do them for you. And when we fall in sin, we will be embarrassed and we'll be doing the exact same thing that those children of Israel did in the desert. So the rest of God, it speaks of his power, his sufficiency, his care for us if we keep our eyes on him. We just follow him, keeping our eyes on him. Well, we, now we get to verse 4 in chapter 2, Genesis. He rests, and then it says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was on the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So this is the first in verse 4 there. It has the word Lord. And in your Bible, it's capital letters, L-O-R-D. And that's the word we have for Yahweh or God's name. That we don't exactly know how to pronounce because they didn't write the vowels in Hebrew. But we, some people say Jehovah. Some people say Yahweh. It was his name. All right? And the reason why they call it Lord in English is because the word Lord comes from an Anglo-Saxon word for bread, which we also get the word loaf from. 
And because this English, uh, because ancient English men of high stature would keep a continual open house where the poor could come and get bread at their home in their in their where they lived, and they gained this honorable title of lords, meaning dispensers of bread. So I think that's interesting that that's why we use the word lord in our Bibles. Verse seven: The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. So. What's going on here is chapter 1 was an overview, and chapter 2 is kind of like a magnifying glass on exactly how God did it. And it gives us a lot of insights into God's character and to go into things that God wants us to understand. So he says, he formed God, uh, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so man is not made of anything special. God took the most ordinary stuff and made man. Dirt. And I find that a blessing, actually. Because in Psalm 103, it says, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I had an uncle who, who would read this in the King James, and it says, God remembers our frame that we are but dust. And he puts the emphasis like that just to make me laugh. <laughs> it's good to remember. God is not disappointed in you. He doesn't expect you to keep his law in your own strength. But he breathes into us. He provides the resources we need to keep the law. So many people are going through their life and saying, I can't keep the law. I know I'm failing God. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I bet God is so disappointed in me. I bet God is so angry with me. I failed in this way and that way. I'm disappointed in myself. What does God think of me? And what they need to understand is God is there waiting to just breathe life into them if they would humble themselves and ask. He is willing and able. He makes provisions for us. He provides resources for us. So don't be disappointed in yourself. Being disappointed in yourself is actually pride thinking, oh, I should have done better. After all, I'm an American. After all, I'm a woman. I'm a man. I, I grew up in a good house. I have so many excuses as to why I think I should do a better job. And every single one of them are pride. And God says he opposes the proud. A more correct attitude is humility. Confessing our lack of ability, remembering that we're butt dust, and trusting his work and resources on our behalf. I got to read to you guys. Uh, Andrew Murray wrote a book called Humility, which is about humility. It's real small because he didn't, he didn't think himself too prideful to write a big book. <laughs> but in this book, Humility, he gives this amazing description of what humility is. So I'm going to read it to you guys, okay? God makes us out of dirt which means we should be humble. And here's what he says. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. Does your heart race around? Does your heart does it feel like it's yelling inside you? Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is for me to have no trouble, never to be fretted or vexed or irritated or sore or disappointed. Humility means you are fine. 
with whatever happens to you. I get in a car wreck, I'm good. Anvil falls out of the sky, lands on me, I'm good. Someone is mean to me, I'm good. I didn't expect any different. True humility is being okay with whatever happens to you. I, admit, I find that amazing. It is to expect nothing. Well, that goes right in the face of the American dream. We expect to be happy. In our culture, we expect to be able to just buy Beats headphones whenever we want. But no. God says expect nothing. Well, what about a job? Shouldn't I, don't I deserve a job? No. I said I would provide for you. I said nothing about a job. Well, do I, do, don't, shouldn't I expect to be happy? That's not what God promises you. And if you expect nothing, that's true humility. Well, get this. He says to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. Andrew Murray says that's when he knows he's being humble. That's when true humility is reigning in someone's heart, is when someone stabs you with their words and you don't even feel it. Okay, I'm, I'm good. You can say whatever you want. I'm good. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to take care of you. That's humility. And what does God do with humility? He gives grace. He breathes the breath of life into that heart of humility. How do you know you're dead? When someone stabs you and you don't react. He continues, he says, It is to be at rest when nobody praises me, when I'm blamed or despised. To just be at rest. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around me is trouble. It is the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ's redemptive work on Calvary's cross manifested in those of his own who are definitely subject to the Holy Spirit. When I read that, I remember so many times in my life where I have not been okay with people treating me bad, where I actually have a heart of pride. And I may have thought I was humble. I may have thought I was doing the Lord's will. But the fact that it's getting under my skin, the way people treat me, or the things that are happening in my life, it is showing my insolent pride. And God is saying, I will bless you. I will give you life if you are humble. Well, this kind of humility sounds, sounds over the top if you're, telling, if you're asking me. It sounds basically like I'm dead. Basically like I just let people walk all over me. Isn't that funny that that's where corpses are in the cemetery? People walking all over me all the time and they don't say anything about it. And that's why Paul says, I have to crucify my flesh on a daily basis because my flesh doesn't want to be walked on, but the Spirit of God is something else. The Spirit of God 
breathes life into me. When I have no care of myself, when I go to the Lord and say, everything I am is yours, he gives grace in that situation. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. Very interesting verse. This tells us that when God made Adam, he put him in the garden, and then he recreated every tree right in front of him. And he recreated every animal right in front of him. Why? So that Adam knew that God was the one that did it. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first was Pishon, uh, uh, and it is one which skirts around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. And it is the one which is toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Where are these four rivers and what does that all mean? I have no idea. That whole land was destroyed by the flood. We're going to find about that later. If you didn't know that, I spoiled it for you. I'm sorry, but you can read ahead and hear about it. We'll get there in a minute. But at the beginning, I said there was a couple trees there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And it's interesting because that's always been the struggle and the option laid before every man. In fact, those two trees are right before you right now. And you are choosing every moment of every day which one you're going to eat from. You're either eating from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the tree of life. God's way equals life. That's God's tree. He's saying God's way equals life. You walk with him, you'll live. You obey him, you'll live. You trust him, you'll live. You abide in him, you'll live. Life just will flow out of you. Man's way or rebellion equals making your own decisions about what's right and wrong. Hey, I'm going to do what I think is right. I'm not going to obey God. God says, love my wife. Psh, I'm not going to obey him. I'm going to make my own decision about what's right and wrong. God says to respect my husband. Psh, I'm going to make my own decisions. God says, honor my boss. I'll decide when I'm going to do that, how far I'm going to go in doing that, because I am a man's man, and I'm going to do what I want to do. It says, I don't need to just follow you and listen to everything you say, God. I can figure this out on my own. I don't want anyone holding me back. What if it's fun? What if I'm missing out on something? Oh, man, is following God ever missing out on something? No, never. It's Fullness of joy and life. In Psalm 16, verse 11, is a very important verse that says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That means following God and doing His will is the most pleasurable occupation you can ever be busied with. It's the funnest thing ever, following God. It is amazing. In Psalm 45, it says, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. 
This verse is a messianic verse about Jesus, and he's basically saying, Jesus, because you just love doing what God wants, you are so good at doing what God wants, and you just love righteousness so much, God is going to anoint you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, which means you will be the happiest person ever to live. Jesus was the happiest person ever. Even when he's dying, giving his life for the miserable sinners who don't even know what he's doing for them, he was still anointed with the oil of joy more than his companions. He was the happiest person to ever live because that's the consequence of being with God who is the source of all joy. Are you sad? Do you struggle with depression? Do you struggle with just being bummed out sometimes? At his presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I don't understand how it works. I don't, but it does. Jesus is the cure for sadness even. He will cause you to have joy even in suffering. Eating this tree would give Adam the experience of evil in addition to his experience of good. God offered good to Adam. He said, you can just have a whole life of good, a whole life of joy and happiness, but because I've made you in my image, that means there needs to be a choice. Because my image, who I am, is I have free will. I can choose whatever I want. And so because I want you to have a relationship with me, I want to love you, I created you to have a relationship with me, so I need to give you an option to choose, and it's the knowledge of good and evil. You can have the experience of evil in addition to the experience of good, if you would like. And I sure hope you don't pick that. It could also mean that God could test good and evil in man. That's another way you can look at it. So verse 15, then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded man saying, of every tree of the garden you may eat freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it you shall surely die. So God gives Adam some responsibilities on the very first day he was made. I wish we could do that with our kids, but they don't have any responsibility. They just sit there and cry. And he's going to have a couple more responsibilities soon, too. Uh, he was told to tend and to keep the garden and to eat the trees. But God told him, don't choose your own way. It only leads to death. You will die. Death. Spiritual death happened the moment that Adam chose his own way. We'll talk about more about this later. So God gives a command and clearly explains the consequences. Uh-oh. So you're telling me God is just already throwing around rules? Being the boss? Not going to be the boss of me. How could a God of love tell me what to do and deal out consequences if I break his rules? It's not loving to tell someone what to do. God, is it? Actually, because he created us with the ability to connect with him as no other creature can, in his image, even the angels don't have that kind of connection ability with God. So along with this powerful ability to connect with God comes free will and a choice to do our own things if we want to. So God is not just giving them rules. He is giving them a truth. And the truth is that if we choose to go our own way, we are literally leaving the source of everything that's good. It's like leaving the air and going to the bottom of the lake. 
You will die because you're not connected to the environment that gives life anymore. And that's what God says you will do when you choose your own way. You will die. Because life comes through me and me only. But you can do it if you want. If you want to swim to the bottom of the lake, you can do it. The consequences that God gives are just the natural effect of leaving the source of life. He loves man. So he warns him and informs him of the truth. It's an act of love, not restriction. People are so uptight about these rules and restrictions. It's not that. It's love. I want you to experience life. So don't have sex before you get married. Don't do drugs. Easy. I want you to experience what real life is about. Don't sin. All sin leads to death. I want you to have life. Jesus warns us and he says, stay close to me or you're really going to mess everything up. Or as John puts it in John 15, abide in me for apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what he says. So verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. This is another job that God gives Adam on his first day alive. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that's what his name was. So Adam gave name to all the cattle and the birds of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper, helper comparable to him. Well, everything was good in all of God's creation until God looked at Adam. And he said, that's not good. <laughs> Adam is alone. He's kind of weird when he's alone. I'm going to make him a helper. He needs some help. So God decides to give Adam a little present, a helper, someone who's perfect for Adam. And I love the way that God works in Adam's heart to know his own need before he met that need with him. Remember, Adam has not sinned yet. So is it a sin that Adam is without a helper? No. Is it a sin that Adam realizes, man, I'm kind of a goober when I'm by myself? No. His own lack was not a sin. He had not sinned. But God makes him aware of his need, his lack, his humility, and then God does something really neat. He gives Adam this little job. He brings him every species, which if you, if you look scientifically, it's about 5,000 different species in the world, five to 7,000. And he gives them the name. And you can do that in a couple hours. If you were to be given names to all the species, this is not an unimaginable job. This is just bear, hippopotamus, lion, dog. So he gives him this job, and Adam starts to notice all the happy couples. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Lion purring next to each other. They're, they're having fun. Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, they're doing good. And Adam starts to realize that he has a need. What if Adam would have freaked out at that point and, and, and married a monkey or a sloth or a pig? And some of the women I know just popped in your mind, I can tell you exactly what that's like. Well, you see, no matter how good any of those options are, because they're all good in what they're made for, none of them were what God had planned for Adam. God has a way better plan for Adam than a monkey. And he's about to give it to him. And sometimes we can just get in front of God and say, ah, 
I have a need. I, I need something so bad right now. I'm going to go do something to figure it out. And God's like, just calm down. I want to bless you, but I want to do it in my time. Hang on here. Just rest. Again, it comes back to rest. Just chill out. I'm going to take care of it. He could have been impatient, but he just rests in the Lord. And look at this picture of Adam resting in the Lord. This is pretty amazing. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. So God's even helping Adam rest a little bit. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So the rib covers the heart. It covers the inside of the man and God takes a rib and he creates a woman and he brings the woman to the man and he marries them. Adam is pretty pumped about getting a naked wife as a present from God. And so he writes a little love jingle. And he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's pretty pumped. You would be too if that was your present from God. And he even says that this relationship, this marriage is way better and more important than even your relationship with your parents. And I don't even know how Adam knew that at this point because he didn't have any parents. But then we see that they become one flesh, which is that physical and spiritual oneness. And it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Or do you not know that he was joined to a harlot as one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. See, the consequences of misusing this amazing gift of intimacy is actually self-destroying. And God just gives us the, the consequences right off the bat. He doesn't want us to have a misunderstanding. He says, if you mess up in this part of your life, you are literally destroying your own body, your own life. It's on you. No matter how, you know, even if our culture all around us says it's not, there's no consequences. They say, it's free love. It's as long as you use protection or whatever they say. There's no spiritual consequences. And God says, no. No matter how loud they scream that message, it is not true. You cannot sleep with whomever you want, wish with no consequences, and that truth will never change. No matter how much Hollywood or the music industry condone and encourage this kind of freedom, God says you're playing with your own soul and your soul will be the one that suffers with the consequences. So stay pure. Let God give you the right gifts at the right time and it will be a blessing in your life. And I can't think of any better way to illustrate it than this. Two students, theological students, were walking along the street in the Whitechapel District of London. A section where old and used clothing is sold that they were walking by the section of, of stores and what a filling, fitting illustration this makes, said one of the students as he pointed to a suit of clothes hanging by a rack, hanging by rack in, in a window. And a sign on this clothes said, slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price. 
That's it exactly, he continued. We get soiled by gazing at vulgar pictures, reading a coarse book, or allowing ourselves a little indulgence in dishonest or lustful thoughts. And so when the time comes for our character to be appraised, we are greatly reduced in value. Our purity, our strength is gone. We are just part and parcel of the general shop-worn stock of the world. Yes, continual slight deviations from the path of right may greatly reduce our usefulness to God and our fellow man. In fact, these little secret sins can weaken our character so that when we face a moral crisis, we cannot stand the test. As a result, we go down in spiritual defeat because we have been careless about little sins. They were both naked, and the, his, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. They weren't just nude, but they were totally exposed, and they were cool with it. They had, done, they had nothing to hide. They had no shame from any wrong choice that had ever been made. Why were they... Uh, why are we uncomfortable when someone stares at us or even looks at us, let alone stand naked in front of someone? That's like torture for us. Because there are those things that I don't want to reveal. There are hidden things in my life that I'm afraid of people knowing. I want to control how people see me, how people view me. Even God, we try to turn and run and hide as Adam will, as we'll see. But, as Hebrews 4.13 says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, Behold, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give account. He sees it all, and he still loves us. He sees the gross things, he sees the selfish heart, the immorality that we dream about, and he still loves us. In fact, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates, he proves how much he loves us, his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's where we end and close today, is our reminder that God sees everything like you're standing naked before him. If all our sin was dirt and grime on our bodies, and we were naked there before God, and he still has compassion and love. And he's willing to take us and to wash us clean. He's willing to pay the price for that bath, which was the life of his own son. So let's all stand up. Let's all stand up as we sing a, a song to just end our service today. And I want to put this offer out there. If you have been living without rest, or you know that there is dirt and grime and shame, and you know that you've broken this moral law, and you feel the guilt of it, and you feel the, the wrongness just in your soul, there is a cleansing available. Even outside the Bible, we could reasonably come to the conclusion that God would do it if you asked. But with the Bible, we see that he's always wanted relationship and he's always done everything necessary and needed for us to get to him, to us to be cleansed, for us to be changed. He's always done it. For Adam, he did it. He's always been loving to meet people's needs. That's the character he displays. 
And so if you have a need today that you want God to cleanse you or you want God to forgive you, I beg you to ask him. See what happens. Throw yourself before him and say, God, I need you. Breathe that breath of life into my soul and make me alive because I've been living dry and I've been living dead. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our, our Savior. You are the name of the God that's character, whose character is love. You are the name by which we can call upon and be saved. Your name changes everything. And I thank you so much for the revelation that you've given us through your word of your character, who you are, and the truths about what you will do but also the truths about the consequences of sin. God, we don't want to die. There is a self-preserving nature inside us where we want to live, we want to experience life, and yet we get confused and, and we've taken of this tree of the knowledge, we've, we've decided that we know what's best and we've gone that way, we've sinned. But Lord, you Take us back if we would just come and accept your, your uh, gift of rest. There's so many illustrations and every single one of them points to your love shed for us by the blood on the cross. And God, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our hearts. And Lord, I pray we would get our eyes off of our circumstances, off of the things happening to us. And Jesus, that our eyes would be on you and on you alone. That you would be the source of everything that we need. The very breath of our soul, our spirit. God, we need you. We trust, we stand before you as washed clean by faith. In your name we pray. Amen.